From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, September 11th. I'm Marco Werman. A quieter 9-11 anniversary here in the U.S., but in Yemen, a deadly reminder that al-Qaeda still threatens. Also, why Osama bin Laden's image as an anti-imperialist hero didn't last long. His aura, his image faded years ago when it was obvious that he wasn't really getting anywhere. Plus, going home to Kosovo and showing off your American wheels. I didn't want to rent the car. I said, you know what, I'm going to bring my own car there. A real American muscle car with $12 a gallon gas here. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon, October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH, producer of American Experience, filmmaker Rick Burns examines how the staggering death tolls of the Civil War altered the character and psyche of our nation forever. Don't miss Death and the Civil War, Tuesday, September 18th, on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Eleven years since al-Qaeda's 9-11 attacks, and more than a year after Osama bin Laden was killed, U.S. officials talk a lot about how the terrorist group is much diminished now. But today, there's a reminder that al-Qaeda still poses a serious threat in some parts of the world. A powerful car bomb struck the motorcade of Yemen's defense minister in the capital, Sana'a. The bomb killed several people, but the minister escaped unharmed. There was no immediate claim of responsibility for the blast, but al-Qaeda's Yemeni branch has carried out several failed assassination attempts against the minister before. The bombing comes a day after Yemeni authorities announced the death of the number two leader of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Freelance journalist Iona Craig is in Sana'a. Ayana, you were at the bomb scene earlier today. What did you see? It was a scene of chaos, really, when I first arrived. There was still smoke filling into the sky. The fire department were there, but there were four vehicles that had been destroyed, two shops that had been burnt out, and the sidewalk was littered with body parts, and even some parts of, of, of bodies that had been thrown in the blast had, had landed in a nearby tree. Uh, and it was very chaotic scenes there with a very large crowd that had gathered and uh, a lot of very nervous soldiers. Is this attack seen as retaliation for the death of al-Qaeda's number two in Yemen? I mean, what, what was the motivation here? It is quite possible. The Ministry of Defense has been targeted by the al-Qaeda militants in the past. Uh, most notably on, on May 21st here in Sana'a, there was a huge suicide bombing that killed nearly 100 soldiers at a military parade practice where the Minister of Defense was attending. Again, he managed to walk away from that attack. And that was in retaliation to a military offensive that has been carried out by Yemen's military in southern Yemen to push al-Qaeda's insurgent wing out of southern towns. So it is possible that this attack today is in reaction to this killing that supposedly happened. This still hasn't been confirmed yet that al-Qaeda's number two has in fact been killed. We normally wait to hear for a confirmation from al-Qaeda themselves. Right, understood. Now, uh, al-Qaeda took advantage of the political vacuum in Yemen uh, during unrest last year. How big of a threat is al-Qaeda in Yemen? How much of the country do they actually control? 
Not so much now. Last year they did. They took over at least five pounds in southern Yemen. They declared an Islamic emirate and they were literally governing particularly one town. But after this military offensive that began in May, they were then able to, in some cases, negotiate a withdrawal. Iona, I want to ask you this. 11 years after 9-11, with the continuing presence of al-Qaeda in Yemen and uh, the uh, U.S. drone strikes, has all of that translated into anti-Americanism for the average Yemeni? The main reason any anti-Americanism has grown, and it has here really in the last year, is a direct result of the drone strikes. These were brought in again in Yemen in May last year after a year-long break, and we've really seen a sort of surge in them this year, certainly. And this has generally caused a lot of resentment from not only necessarily the areas that have been targeted, but from the population as a whole. And this has definitely kind of made a lot of people very resentful of what the Americans are doing here. And this was kind of cemented really about 10 days ago uh, when 13 civilians were killed in, in what was apparently a drone strike in the town of Raga, um, about 90 miles from Sana. A missile hit a bus and there were women and children who were killed on that bus. And those kind of things really, really do not help the cause of whatever America is is trying to do here and really does cause resentment amongst Yemenis. Iona, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much for your time. No problem. Thank you. There was a milestone today for a country that emerged from war. It was Kosovo's first day of unsupervised independence. The country has been supervised by a group of 25 nations, including the U.S., since 2008 when it declared independence. Peacekeepers remain in place, but it's still a big step. The U.S. has been one of Kosovo's biggest champions since the NATO war in 1999. Thousands of Kosovo Albanians live in the U.S., and they maintain strong ties back home. As Nate Tabak reports from Pristina, those ties extend to their cars, which sometimes find their way onto Kosovo roads. During peak hours, the Blairi parking lot in downtown Pristina resembles a cross between a can of sardines and a carousel. To accommodate overflow, a small staff of young men keep about a half dozen cars going in a slow loop in and out of the lot. It reflects the gridlock of Kosovo's capital each summer, when many of the 800,000-strong diaspora come home, along with their cars. In the Blairi lot, about half the cars have foreign plates. Today, there are cars from Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Great Britain, and Virginia. Parking lot owner Blarim Shabani says around seven or eight American cars come each day, and they stand out, not just for their license plates. Most of the American cars run on gasoline, not diesel, and they're bigger. Across town on Bob Dole Street, right near Bill Clinton Boulevard, Albert Nabiu runs a one-man car wash. He washes 20 to 30 American-plated vehicles a week. Many are Chryslers, Mercedes, and Audis. Nabiu says they mostly belong to Kosovo Albanians who live in the U.S., they're probably here on vacation, Nebu says. Albanians are used to bringing their cars with them. It's difficult to say exactly how many people bring cars over from the U.S. I did an unscientific survey of downtown Pristina over the course of 24 hours. I spotted 13 cars with American plates, from Florida to Alaska. That's when I found this. A black, 340-horsepower V8 Dodge Charger with Indiana plates and an American flag bumper sticker. Valdrin Januzzi is the owner. 
He was just here for a visit from New York. It's a totally American muscle. That's all I drive. Grew up in America. I'm proud of it. And uh, I like to pre present the cars too, worldwide. I drove this car all over Germany. I drove this car in uh, Canada, uh, Switzerland, France, Italy, Albania, Macedonia, Montenegro. And we're waiting to go to Dubai. Januzzi moved to the U.S. as a boy. He joined the U.S. Army and was wounded in Afghanistan. After his discharge in 2008, he took his savings, headed to Detroit, and bought his prized Charger. And it seems that where he goes, so goes the Charger, even if it's across the Atlantic. It sounds pretty crazy, but I wanted to bring it because it represents our country. <laughs> and you see, I have American flags everywhere in this car. I'm proud of it, you know, proud of serving, proud of our nation. And I didn't mind. Didn't mind the $1,200 each way for the car's boat ride from New Jersey to Germany and a host of other costs, like insurance and gas. I didn't want to rent the car. I said, you know what, I'm going to bring my own car there. I'm going to bring my Dodge Charger Handy 5.7, a real American muscle car with $12 a gallon gas here. <laughs> Actually, thanks to the weak euro, fuel is at a more gas-guzzler friendly $6 per gallon in Kosovo, and Januzzi can use all the help he can get. His Charger is rated at a maximum 15 miles per gallon in the city. In Kosovo, brash displays of Americanness are bound to go over well. The U.S. is revered here for leading the NATO bombing campaign in 1999 and backing Kosovo's independence. Our country supports everybody and helps people, you know. Because as America, I think America stands for democracy. You know, everybody equal treated. That's where we stand for. And if there's a problem, we're going to solve it. Many American cars are making one-way trips. I found 19-year-old Joey Morici having coffee with friends. Parked in front of the cafe, on a sidewalk, a new Volkswagen Passat with New York plates. His brother in the Bronx sent it over a few months ago, and Morici plans to sell it. If you buy like $5,000 over there, you sell it 5,000 euros, you make a good profit because euro is better than dollar. But you get more dollars. But in the meantime, there's another perk of driving a car with American plates. Girls like it more. There may be some truth to that. A few minutes after I spoke with U.S. Army vet Valdrin Januzzi, two young women joined him in his Dodge Charger before it drummed away. For The World, I'm Nate Tabak, Pristina. You can see that Dodge Charger, complete with its American flag bumper sticker, Nate's slideshow is at theworld.org. America's image around the globe is, of course, defined by more than just muscle cars. There's Coca-Cola, too. Big U.S. brands like Coke are so ubiquitous worldwide that they tend to define America abroad. This week, a delegation of more than 100 U.S. brand executives is in Egypt, representing several mega U.S. companies interested in the post-revolution Egyptian market. Coca-Cola is represented, along with Pepsi, Boeing, ExxonMobil, Google, Oracle, and Microsoft, to name just a few. It's part of a White House-led effort to make Egypt more attractive to U.S. investors. Hamish Banks directs communications for Coca-Cola's Middle East and North Africa unit. Hamish, we understand that Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi, who took over in June, told your delegation that Egypt is open for business. What does it mean for Coca-Cola to deal with an Islamist government? I mean, is the Muslim Brotherhood open to your brand? We don't really look at the government, but we look at the opportunity that exists in each market. And 
within the Middle East region, of course, we're dealing with a number of, of Muslim governments. So this is nothing new to us. Right. I mean, but Egypt is a country in transition. Some would say it's even politically unstable right now. Coca-Cola has been present in, uh, in Egypt since, I think, 1942. So this is not like we're making our first foray into the, into the market here. And we've certainly had a great deal of success over the years. Our goal is to, to double our business over the course of the next five years. And we feel very confident that that's going to happen. So Coke's been in Egypt since 1942 with uh, various rises and falls in, in its fortunes. How are U.S. brands like Coke received in Egypt right now? Good brands are well received anywhere. I don't think it's so much a question of uh, whether it's a U.S. brand or, or another. I mean, our business is certainly flourishing, and I think I speak for many of the other brands that you mentioned earlier. We don't see significant antipathy towards American brands at this time. On Coca-Cola's website, uh, you maintain that Coke is an international brand. But uh, Hamish, there you are, uh, an American company in Egypt being courted. Doesn't it feel like you are trying to sell an American brand to the world? In many ways, we are an Egyptian brand. Today, we have nine bottling plants here, which uh, employ 12,000 uh, Egyptians directly. Uh, we also, from each of those, those 12,000 jobs, create opportunity and jobs for a further 10 people for each one of those. So cumulatively, we're hoping to provide employment for well over 100,000 Egyptians. I had been under the impression that people in the Mideast really wanted their own cola brands front and center. I remember uh, Mecca Cola and Kibla Cola were launched as alternatives to U.S. brands. What happened to them? In the end, the most successful brands are the ones that really understand the needs of the, the consumers in the local market. We have just launched a new uh, juice-based product in Egypt that uses Egyptian mangoes as the product base. And it does very well because it's meeting a, a consumer need. That is really the measure of a brand. And it goes beyond a marketing gimmick or an idea that may be struggling really to find resonance in the marketplace. Hamish Banks directs communications for Coca-Cola's Middle East and North Africa unit. Hamish, thank you. Thanks, Marco. Coca-Cola and other American brands may remain popular in Egypt, but the U.S. Embassy in Cairo was a target of angry protest today. A crowd of Egyptians scaled the embassy walls and brought down the U.S. flag. They then replaced it with a black flag with an Islamic inscription. The crowd was protesting a film supposedly produced in the U.S. that they considered an attack on Islam's prophet Muhammad. Still ahead on the program, Hungary decides to go after a former Communist Party official. You're listening to The World on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The Palestinian Authority announced a series of economic measures today. They're designed to quell a wave of street protests. For nearly a week, demonstrators across the West Bank have vented their frustrations at the rising cost of living. The target of their anger has been the Palestinian leadership, which made the announcement today. The World's Matthew Bell has more from the West Bank city of Ramallah. A few nights ago, dozens of protesters here in the Amari refugee camp blocked the main road, set tires on fire, and chanted against Palestinian leaders. Today, things were quiet, but the frustration still there. 
A new shipment of tomatoes straight from the farm. Vegetable dealer Mujahid Yassin says the price of tomatoes has almost tripled in just over a month. Prices for water and fertilizer have gone up, Yassin says. Farmers are being hit hard, so they prefer to sell to Israel, where people make a lot more money. That drives prices in the West Bank up further. People here just aren't buying like they used to, Yassin says. The man getting much of the blame is Palestinian Prime Minister Salam Fayyad. A mile or so up the road, a few hundred protesters gather outside the prime minister's office. Among them, employees of the Palestinian Authority, the biggest employer in the West Bank by far. Ghadir Ode works at the Ministry of Labor and says she hasn't been paid in six weeks. I live with my mother and my sister. I support them. And therefore, I'm constantly worried about having money to be able to put food on the table. It's an extremely difficult situation for me. She goes on to blame the Israeli occupation for the West Bank's economic troubles. Then she says it's the Palestinian leadership that's cooperating with Israel and failing to make things better. The demonstration outside the prime minister's office early this afternoon dispersed peacefully. But Salam Fayyad is not taking any chances. Fayyad announced several measures today. He said a recent price hike for fuel will be canceled, sales tax will be cut, civil servants will start getting paid tomorrow, and high-level government officials will take pay cuts. What these moves don't address are the more fundamental challenges for the West Bank economy. The Palestinian Authority is heavily dependent on foreign aid and deep in debt. The U.S. and Arab states have not delivered some $500 million in promised funding. That has created a budget shortfall. Overall unemployment in the West Bank stands at about 20 percent. It's even higher for young people. At the same time, the Palestinian economy is dependent on Israel. The tax rates are tied to the much stronger Israeli economy, And the Israelis, not the Palestinian Authority, have control over the West Bank's borders, most natural resources, and tax collection. In recent days, demonstrators have called on the Palestinian leadership to renegotiate past economic agreements with Israel. Back at the Amari refugee camp, vegetable shop owner Mohammed Khatri says he's got a better idea. All these people running the Palestinian Authority should go, he says. They are not helping the public. When Israel was in complete control of the West Bank, he goes on to say, times were better. People had jobs and more money. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Ramallah in the West Bank. In Spain, the ongoing economic crisis is straining relations between the central government and the country's semi-autonomous regions. Take Catalonia, the region that includes Barcelona. Today, September 11th, is a holiday there. It's when Catalans celebrate their history and a sense of national identity. But this year, the holiday became a call for outright independence from Spain. The world's Jerry Haddon is back from a massive independence march in Barcelona. A million people. That's how big this march is supposed to get before it ends late tonight. That's nearly one out of seven Catalans. The region's never seen anything like this. The official slogan for this year's celebration goes like this. Catalonia no está de Europa. A fired-up teenage protester named Marc Ramon yells out, 
Catalonia, Europe's next independent nation. Catalonia, like Spain's Basque country, has had a movement for independence for centuries. But for the first time in modern history, polls suggest a majority of Catalans now want to secede from the Spanish Union. The catalyst, more than anything, the economic crisis. Despite huge federal budget cuts, Spain doesn't have enough money to go around to pay for everything from schools to roads to hospitals. We contribute more taxes to the state, says Barcelona resident Jordi Flo, and we get less and less back. A woman named Rosa, listening in, gets excited. She says, we're sick of Spain. It's over Spain. Goodbye. Such rhetoric, this huge march, and Spain's three-year-long financial nosedive have Spain's ruling conservatives feeling unusually worried about the rest of Northeast. This march for independence is a dangerous path to go down, said one leader from the center-right popular party, Alicia Camacho. It could lead to a rupture within Catalan society. But Catalan independence is hardly around the corner. Regardless of current sentiment, Catalonia still needs Madrid. The region has just asked the central government for a $7 billion bailout, El meu cor which explains why Catalonia's very president, Arturo Mas, a self-proclaimed Catalan nationalist, is a no-show at today's independence march. Instead, he offered his moral support in this video. Mas has a tough balancing act to perform, and it's even more complicated because Catalonia's bailout request has created friction with other Spanish regions. The president of the southwestern region of Extremadura, José Antonio Monago, says it's unfair that ordinary working Spaniards will have to cough up the bailout dough. To counter this alleged injustice, he's announced that his region will ignore a new federal tax increase on cultural events. That sets up a showdown between Extremadura and Madrid, which isn't what Spain's Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy needs at all. Rebellious regions only hurt Spain's credibility as it seeks to rein in its borrowing costs. But it may already be too late. Spain has gotten a $125 billion bank rescue. Given the country's shrinking economy, most analysts now believe Spain will soon ask for a full-blown government bailout, joining the ranks of Greece, Portugal, and Ireland. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon. Barcelona. Now, here's a way you can declare your own independence by taking this radio program, The World, with you wherever you go. Download the PRI mobile app. It's available from the Android and iPhone stores. You can also comment on any story you hear on The World. Just come to theworld.org. You can tell us the rest. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, the latest on China's missing leader-in-waiting, and later what it's like to tour Prague with a homeless person as your guide. I have to say it was really interesting because for me it was something like journey to a completely different world or maybe underworld. Those stories coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The Chinese chain of command is in the midst of big changes. The leadership of the country is about to switch leaders in a usually secretive handover of power. China's premier, Wen Jiabao, gave what will probably be his last public address today. But it's a Chinese official who didn't make an appearance at the World Economic Forum that's got people talking. Leader-in-waiting Xi Jinping has gone missing, or at least he hasn't shown up for any scheduled public events in more than a week. The world's China correspondent Mary Kay Magsad is at the World Economic Forum in Tianjin. As for Xi Jinping's whereabouts, Mary Kay, uh, wild speculation right now, rumors and semi-official excuses. Tell us what you've been hearing. Well, there are all kinds of rumors that are floating around. One is that he injured his back swimming or possibly playing soccer. Other rumors are that he had a mild heart attack or perhaps a stroke. One of the more wild rumors is that he was in a car accident and that it was actually an assassination attempt by an ally of Bo Xilai, the senior Communist Party official who was taken down earlier this year because his wife killed a British businessman and also because the party thought that he was getting a little too big for his britches. But the fact is, we don't know. The party has said nothing. The government has said nothing when asked about what's going on with Xi Jinping. China's foreign ministry spokesman today, when asked repeatedly about, you know, is he in okay health? Did anything happen to him? He said, I, I wish you'd ask a serious question. Mm. In the meantime, uh, the premier, uh, Wen Jiabao, gave this uh, speech today. How big a distraction was Xi's absence from what Wen Jiabao was saying? Well, Wen Jiabao speaks at the World Economic Forum every year, and he always speaks about the economy. The people who were at the forum were there to hear him speak about China's economy. But there was certainly a, a light buzz going on throughout the day where people were speculating and joking and just trying to figure out what's really going on. There were hundreds of people in the room who were listening to Wen give what was almost like a work report, going through a list of accomplishments uh, that his government has been able to achieve in its 10 years in power. And it was interesting. He was a little defensive in tone compared to previous years. I mean, I've, I've sat through several of these, and in the past, he's been actually quite critical of the structure of economic growth in China. If Xi Jinping is the leader-in-waiting, and for some reason he doesn't reappear, who's next on the list? Really good question. Usually there is no protocol here. This is only the second time in modern Chinese history that there is to be a peaceful transition from one set of leaders to the other in some sort of a coordinated fashion. The last time, the top couple of leaders had been anointed even by Deng Xiaoping while he was still alive. This time, it's the collective leadership that had to do horse trading amongst themselves to decide who they could all live with, and they decided Xi Jinping was the guy. The person who's going to be stepping in as premier, replacing Wen Jiabao, is expected to be Li Keqiang. He's a more controversial figure, and there are many people within the party elite who would prefer not to see him as the top leader. So it could be a little bit like throwing the cards up in the air, but just a very small deck of cards with those who are in the decision-making circle doing a little bit more horse trading to figure out what they do next. But it must be said, we're not at that point yet. We don't know what's happening with Xi Jinping. We've got to wait and see whether he actually shows up in the coming days. 
Now, moving away from the Chinese leadership beat quickly, uh, Mary Kay, uh, the, the Chinese government today accused Japan of stealing disputed islands in the East China Sea. The Japanese government apparently says it bought them for about $30 million. On the surface, it looks like a real estate deal, but of course, it's much more than that. What happened there? Well, yeah, and in fact, Japan has controlled these islands, either Japan or the United States when it was occupying Japan after World War II, has physically controlled these islands for 60, 70 years. The Chinese government claims that these islands were an ancient part of China, but the Chinese government has been making these claims about islands and atolls and pieces of rock stretching as far as 500 miles off the coast of Chinese land. So some of China's neighbors, the Philippines, Vietnam, who claim the seas that are much closer to their shores, think that this is patently absurd. And the Japanese think so, too. In the case of these islands, they're actually close both to Japan and China. But Japan has been physically controlling them. In this case, what has happened is that a Japanese family had technical title to these islands. A right-wing nationalistic local politician had said that he was going to buy the islands and develop them as a sort of in-your-face move to China. These Mm. are ours and we'll do what we want to with them. And the national government of Japan moved in to say, we're going to buy the islands and not develop them, thinking that this was a way to cool things down. Well, the Chinese government doesn't see it that way. The world's China correspondent, Mary Kay Magstad, at the World Economic Forum in Tianjin, China. Mary Kay, thanks as always. Thank you, Marco. One of the most violent episodes of the Cold War took place in 1956 in Hungary. The country attempted to break away from the control of the Soviet Union. The Soviets responded by sending troops and tanks to crush the Hungarian uprising. Thousands died in the fighting and the suppression that followed. Finally, this week, a former top Hungarian communist official was detained for his part in the bloody crackdown. His name is Béla Biscu, and he turns 91 on Thursday. Veronica Guyash is a reporter for the Dow Jones News Service in the Hungarian capital, Budapest. Veronica, who is Béla Biscu and what is he accused of? Biscu, he was a minister of the interior after the uh, uprise. And um, basically, he was also member of a committee which is now accused of having organized uh, shootings of civilians after the uprise. And was was Biscu one of many Hungarians who collaborated with the Soviets? Uh, Yes, that's right. He was one of the key members of this party. He was basically sitting with um, the leader, Janos Kada, and um, he had, of course, several companions. Um, All of them are now dead. Is there one specific incident that uh, Bela Biscu is associated with? Yes, there are actually two shootings that the prosecutor's office have said he's he was um, he has taken part in organizing. Uh, one of them is a shooting in Budapest in December, early December, close to the Nugati Square, one of the key uh, squares of Hungary, where troops killed five people. And then he's also associated with shootings elsewhere in the country. Right now, these two shootings are those um, he can be for sure uh, associated with. Right. And these were unarmed protesters, we should remind our listeners. I mean, this event, Veronica, took place nearly 60 years ago. Uh, Where does 1956 sit today in the Hungarian psyche? It's something that divides people up until this day. There are many who say communist leaders back then didn't get what they deserved. Others say they should be left alone. 
uh, they're old people. Uh, I think these debates are somehow or can be somehow um, likened perhaps to a Nazi war criminals. Um, very old men today, but have participated in, in really serious issues. Right. So it, it sounds like the case is stirring up all those emotions once again in Hungary. Uh, but but we got to say, I mean, we're talking three generations of Hungarians since this happened in 56. I mean, do, do young people kind of connect with what's going on within this narrative? Yeah, sure they do. It was actually young people who uh, once again got the focus on Bela Biscu, uh, a team of, of young young people who uh, shot a film, shot a, a documentary on him, actually evoked the case once again, and their movie, their film, helped authorities also gain, gain insight into uh, Biscu's life today. Why is this all happening now? I mean, this is 20 years after the Berlin Wall came down and freedom came to that part of the world. This is a very good question. There's a really wide public debate about this in Hungary right now. Many say Biesko could have been detained much earlier on the same, very same basis on, um, on what he was detained on uh, yesterday. Um, the thing is, right now, there's, there's a law that ensures that all communist-era wrongdoers can be, can be detained and, of course, prosecuted. Now, just last month, an attempt to prosecute a Nazi-era war criminal immediately attracted attention worldwide. You've got this case now of communist war crimes. It's not attracting that much attention. Are, are Hungarians aware of that difference? And what do they say about it? Basically, it's two, of course, two different cases. But young people, as you said, they want the truth. Hungary needs all of its criminals caught, independent of their age, of what type of war crimes they've committed. And there's quite a, there's quite a great um, unison on this among people here in Hungary. Veronica Guyash with the Dow Jones News Service in Budapest. Thank you very much. Thank you. Back in communist times, Hungary's neighbor to the north was Czechoslovakia. But after the Velvet Revolution, that old neighbor split into two. And that's where our geo-quiz starts. We want you to name the two countries born after Czechoslovakia was dissolved. And since that's pretty easy, name their two capitals as well. What the heck? One of those capitals, with its castles, bridges, Jewish quarter, and Old Town Square, is more popular with tourists than the other. More than five million tourists visited last year to stroll along cobblestone streets past buskers like this one. A new tour company in the city employs homeless people as guides. They show visitors the rougher side of the capital. We'll tag along when we come back with the answer in just a bit. Now a quick update from elsewhere in our solar system. The Mars rover Curiosity has sent a selfie back to Earth. For those not hip to the lingo, a selfie is a self-portrait, the kind you might post to Facebook. Curiosity's selfie shows the clunky head of the rover and a bit of its single robotic arm. Dust on the lens gives the photo a distinct sepia tone. The picture was taken by one of the rover's 17 cameras. It's called the Mars Hand Lens Imager. Some of the other images taken by that camera show Curiosity's underbelly. You can check out the self-portraits for yourself, and yes, they are safe for work. They're all at theworld.org. 
Lots of our geotexting game players came up with the answer to today's GeoQuiz. Special mention for Angela in Queen Anne, Washington, Joanna in Indianapolis, and Arash in San Antonio. They correctly named the two countries that emerged from the dissolution of the old Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia, and their capitals, Prague and Bratislava, respectively. Join in next time. Just text GeoQuiz one word to 69866. Now, no offense, Bratislava, but Prague's a place to go if you have to choose between the two. Millions of tourists visit the Czech capital each year to soak in the pleasant bohemian atmosphere. But a new tour company, Prague Ulitz, shows visitors a seedier side of the city. The guides are homeless people. Reporter Emily Thompson went along for a tour. <laughs> Petr's tour starts on a square surrounded by drab socialist housing in the suburbs of Prague. A children's fair now draws a crowd, but he has less joyful memories of the area. It's where Petr used to mine for food, as he describes it, in the nearby garbage bins. He says police were less likely to bother him here than if they caught him rummaging through dumpsters in the city center. Petr takes his tour to a fountain in a public park where he used to collect water. He talks about having periodic jobs, but says he still often ended up sleeping in empty wagons at the train depot. As in many cities reeling from the global economic crisis, homelessness in Prague is on the rise. It's up 7 to 8 percent over last year. Local charities estimate there are some 4,000 people on the street. Wearing thick smudges of black eyeliner and bangle bracelets that clang together when she gestures, Karim, a homeless transvestite and former male prostitute, tells a tour group about her struggle to kick a drug habit. Half the price of each $10 tour ticket goes directly to the guides. Pragulit's co-founder, Terezi Jurečkova, says they use the rest of the money on training for the guides. Jurečkova hopes Prague's notoriety as a tourist draw will go at least a little way toward mitigating the problem of homelessness. It was from the beginning that people didn't really know what we are doing and how we can work with homeless people. But now when they see that we are really doing it and they see a lot of articles and they see um, pictures from tours and videos from tours and they see that it's really working and these people are nice and have a lot of things to show, they start to believe that we can really do it and it can work. Lukash took Karim's night tour with a group of friends from his university and was surprised to learn about the underbelly of the city he thought he knew so well. Honestly, I didn't know what exactly to expect, so I found out during the meeting with the guy. And I have to say it was really interesting because for me it was something like journey to a completely different world or maybe underworld. I'm <laughs> not sure if it's the right word. So for me, those were mostly completely new findings, and I have to say that normally I'm driving a car, so I'm not meeting these people at all. The tour guide Petr is now married with a young daughter. With what he makes from these tours and some state benefits, he's able to afford a small apartment. He hopes that his story will help educate visitors about the day-to-day realities of homeless life. For The World, I'm Emily Thompson in Prague. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of American Experience. Filmmaker Rick Burns examines how the staggering death tolls of the Civil War altered the character and psyche of our nation forever. Don't miss Death and the Civil War, Tuesday, September 18th on PBS. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. People in the U.S. marked the 11th anniversary of the attacks of September 11th in quiet ways. There were ceremonies at New York's Ground Zero, the Pentagon, and Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The crowds were smaller than in previous years, and for the first time, no elected official spoke at the World Trade Center site. That may reflect a change in the way people here are remembering 9-11. There's also been some change in the way people in other parts of the world view the perpetrators. Back in 2003, the world's Arun Roth went to Kolkata, or Calcutta in India, to do a story for Frontline on a folk opera featuring Osama bin Laden. And he was more than a little surprised to see how al-Qaeda's leader was portrayed at the time. I was living in New York 11 years ago when the city was attacked. I walked through the clouds of revolting smoke that issued from the pile for weeks after the Twin Towers fell. Naturally, I jumped at the opportunity to see how the events had been transformed into a jatra, or street opera, in Calcutta. Jatras last around four hours, with as much song and dance as a Bollywood film, and live musicians. They are amazing. But my feelings soured during the performance. Even though I don't speak Bengali, I gradually realized that this Jatra portrayed bin Laden as a Robin Hood character, and Americans and our allies as villains. I betrayed a little bias when I interviewed the audience afterward. What about his, uh, his means, the fact that he's a terrorist? Is that, uh, uh, this man essentially said that America had made bin Laden, so was ultimately responsible. Now, Calcutta has long been a seat of radical leftist, anti-Western sentiment, so this kind of take on world events was pretty common. It was also April of 2003, a month after the Iraq invasion, so a strain of anti-Americanism and the anti-war protests there weren't surprising. What unnerved me, though, was the anger, hate even. I never expected to hear Death to America chanted in an Indian city. Kovri Ganapati is a fellow with the Global India Foundation, a think tank in Calcutta. She says the city's initial reaction to the 9-11 attacks mirrored the rest of the world's we-are-all-Americans-now response. But bin Laden's first post-9-11 video included a laundry list of grievances, something to appeal to Muslims across the world. For Indian Muslims, it was bin Laden's mention of Kashmir, a Muslim-majority state claimed by both India and Pakistan. When you talk about Kashmir, uh, you know, it's one of those uh, flashpoints in our heads, as in, in the subcontinent. So it immediately catches your attention. So in many ways, he played to the galleries in a way that, uh, you know, would make uh, any advertiser very proud. But the most striking feature of the protests I saw in 2003 was how Hindus and Muslims were uniting to condemn America, and not just over the Iraq war. I encountered plenty of Hindus in Calcutta whose feelings towards bin Laden ranged from ambivalence to approval. What was the attraction? It's a question of sovereignty and it's a question of dignity. Rami Khoury is the director of the Isam Ferez Institute at the American University of Beirut. Osama bin Laden and these various Salafist movements play on this theme very much. It's anti-imperial, uh, but it's also about your own sovereignty and your own dignity. He says that for many across the Middle East and South Asia, bin Laden appealed to a deep-seated anti-colonial mindset. He was the little guy sticking it to the man in the most outrageous manner possible. But as the years passed, bin Laden and al-Qaeda didn't get very far in taking down the corrupt post-colonial leadership in Muslim countries. His aura, his image faded years ago um, when it was obvious that he wasn't really getting anywhere. And many people really didn't like um, what he did in 9-11, uh, attacking uh, 
big office blocks uh, and and thousands of innocent civilians being killed is not the kind of thing that ordinary people in the Arab or Islamic world would do themselves. They would not support that kind of thing. By late 2010, bin Laden had been overtaken by history. You've had this huge um, groundswell of uh, support for these uprisings in the Arab world because they're the last anti-colonial battle. And they are these movements going on now, these Arab uprisings and revolutions, really represent the, the, the will of the majority in these countries in a way that bin Laden could never, ever tap, even though he tried very hard. Ironically, the killing of bin Laden has raised his Q score once again. His popularity had been on the decline, even in Pakistan. But the U.S. raid into Abbottabad ripped open a hornet's nest of anti-colonial resentment. And the quick burial at sea has spawned a thousand new conspiracy theories. In Pakistan, some say he's still alive. And he's been popping up again in the rich pop culture of Calcutta. Kovri Ganapati. Although he was not a part of the popular imagination for a while now, in his death, he has somehow managed to make a comeback. The Shahi Imam in one of the mosques in Calcutta, he led a prayer meeting for bin Laden after he was killed. But you have to understand that for a deeply religious community, bin Laden's death became a story about what, what sort of last rites he was accorded. And that story served as the basis for a new jatra in Calcutta last year, bin Laden killed at the hands of America. The opera focuses not on the killing itself, but on the supposedly disrespectful way U.S. forces disposed of his corpse. For the world... I'm Arun Roth. You can see Arun's original frontline world story on the Osama bin Laden folk opera. We have the video at theworld.org. We'll let the city of New York have the final words today. The words are bossa and nova and... A Brazilian in New York. There are some things that the late Brazilian guitarist and singer-composer Luis Bonfa would still recognize in the city today. His 1959 recording of this song, inspired by New York, does seem to capture the sound of the city then and now. The people cross the street. Here's something else Bonfa would relate to, the cosmopolitan face of the city that, despite ups and downs, still attracts people from across the planet, including another Brazilian guitarist who now makes his home in New York, Mauricio Pessoa. The music on Mauricio Pessoa's just-released album Habitat emerged after numerous trips he made over the past few years between New York and Rio de Janeiro. Pessoa arrived in New York two and a half years ago to attend the Juilliard School of Music. Like so many people who dream of making it in New York, Pessoa had his New York City goal. Juilliard, where he recently graduated from, was great, but Pessoa's dream when he came to New York was to record an album there. From Habitat, here's Mauricio Pessoa's track, Boca No Lodo. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Sai da janela, menino, olha a bala Onde anda, menino, olha a fala Sai do colégio, mal escreve, mal fala Com lápis sem ponto, ele aponta, é uma arma Sai da prefeitura, o prefeito com a mala Com o dinheiro da obra da vala Diz que abre o sigilo da conta do banco Desliza o barranco na gente que rala Rala mandioca e nada na panela Olha a mulher do prefeito, olha ela 
mala por dinheiro na boca de couro Cadela de brinco e coleira de ouro Quem paga a fatura e a dura é a gente Sem dente descrente, sorriso banguela World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.